Good to be with you all today. I appreciate um, everything that's been done in our Bible classes and service up to this point. Appreciate singing with you, uh, the Lord's Supper message that Brandon bought, brought today. Um, I, I really appreciate Matt's class this morning. I personally think that was the best class of any of the classes in our Who is God study. It was just excellent. I'm going to chew on the ways that I don't want to be like Cain and have been like Cain uh, for, for many days to come. So I really appreciate that. And just everything, uh, your presence especially this morning. Today and, and next week, both of those services are going to be uh, dedicated to rolling out the, the new theme, uh, the theme for 2024. Uh, I noticed that on some of our older slides that are still up here this morning, we've got Ministers of Reconciliation. That's not our theme anymore. We're not Ministers of Reconciliation as of today. <laughs> just kidding. We're still going to be Ministers of Reconciliation. But we're going to see why. One of the reasons for that is some of the stuff we're going to talk about in 2024, how it's connected to this other uh, uh, very uh, important uh, and frequently occurring image in the Bible that we're going to make our, our theme of emphasis in our teaching, in our community group uh, discussion questions. Uh, some of our memory verses will relate to that, and no doubt many other things. So over the past few weeks... Uh, much of the world has been focused on the birth of, of Jesus, of course. Uh, in the weeks leading up to December 25th, Christmas Day, of course, the infant Jesus is, is everywhere, right? You can't go anywhere without seeing uh, images of the infant Jesus. Manger scenes are ubiquitous. Uh, manger scenes are, you get the wooden ones out in the front lawns, you've got drawings on greeting cards, uh, the little mantle size uh, nativity creches that you can, you can buy them in stores. Um, so, uh, infant Jesus images are just everywhere. Our culture is replete with them. Some Christmas songs seem content to freeze Jesus in his infancy, right? He is uh, sleeping in heavenly peace as a baby. He's away in a manger. That's it. That's the scene. He's an infant. Jesus is a baby, kind of removed from the hustle and bustle and problems of our world. And those, those scenes are moving because they remind us that this logos, this I am that I am God who is being itself, chose to come in the form not just of, of, of matter, of creation, intercreation as part of it, but as a vulnerable baby. And, and, and as moving as those are, um, you, you know, it's, it's interesting that for many of us, I think, in our culture, Jesus sort of stays um, as a baby, or maybe that's forgotten pretty quickly, maybe even as soon as the next weekend when New Year's Eve parties roll around. That's all past. Nice baby in a, in a manger, sleeping heavenly peace. That's not really relevant to tonight or to the new year. We want to talk about something that should radically change all that, not only today and next week, but in this year to come, if the Lord wills. Because the birth of, a Jesus, of Jesus was the birth of a king, a sovereign, a ruler. The baby who slept this heavenly peace woke up. He didn't stay in a manger. He grew up. And he did things. And he's presented in Scripture as the king who's come. Remember the Magi to King Herod, the wise men who appear in Matthew's account of the, the birth of Christ? 
They say, where is he who has been born king? They've come to worship from some pagan land in the east, the newborn king. And Herod takes it as the birth of a king, doesn't he? Herod is a king. And he's not, okay, there's two sheriffs in town, that's cool. No. He's going to eradicate a whole lot of people to get rid of just this claimant to the throne. And the birth of this king signals the, the coming of a whole new kingdom. All right, and so our new theme for 2024 comes from the words of Jesus um, that uh, Henry just read for us in Matthew 6. This is, of course, from the so-called Lord's Prayer, the model prayer that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, tells his disciples how to pray. And among the words that he gives uh, to us are these words. We are to pray to the Heavenly Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So throughout the year, uh, in our sermons, in our uh, community groups, in some of the memory verses, etc., etc., we're going to explore the implications and some applications of this very important uh, biblical theme. Kingdom come. Kingdom come. For today, there are a few fundamental questions that are raised by this petition, by this plea, your kingdom come. For a thing to be coming implies movement, right? It's coming, present tense verb. It's, it's moving from one place to another place. Imagine that I just came up to you out of the blue, no context as far as you know, and I just make this curt sentence or statement. Something is coming. Imagine, I just, I just appear in an alley and go, something is coming. Aren't, isn't that going to raise some questions in your mind? First of all, you're going to know, just in terms of the logic of that statement, that, that the verb coming replies, or implies a, a going from one place to another. And so you're going to know coming from where? <laughs> coming from where? Coming to where? Like right here in this alley, or what do you mean? Coming from where to where? Those are questions that just sort of grow out of that statement. And then the what question of what is this something that is coming? You'd be left with a lot of questions. So as we consider this phrase, your kingdom come this morning, we're going to come, come at this a lot of different, from a lot of different standpoints throughout the year. But this morning, I want to do something really simple. I want to just sort of address the three best, basic questions that, I think grow out of the statement, your king, or the request to God the Father, your kingdom come. And the questions are whence, where, and what? Whence, or from where? The second question, to where? Where's it landing? Where's it going? And then thirdly, what is it? All right, that's what we're going to do this morning. Pretty simple. Um, let's jump right in. First of all, the question whence. And I mean by that, this, what is its point of origin? What is its source? What is it, where is it deriving from? Where is it coming from? Note that Jesus is saying we should pray for the kingdom to come. Your kingdom come. It invites us to consider its origins. Where does it come from? From whom does it come? And the short answer is the Heavenly Father. He says, pray your kingdom come. And if you remember, he's addressing 
our Father in heaven. So the kingdom he's talking about here is a kingdom that originates in heaven, if you will. The, the realm of God. And it originates with the heavenly Father. Your kingdom come. That's the short answer to this question. This is a kingdom originating in heaven. And if you look at the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it is all over the gospel of Matthew. So the first thing we have to do is go back to get any kind of purchase on what this kingdom is. We've got to understand it in the context that it appears in, right? Don't words depend on their context, right? If I said to you, um, what does the word induction mean? I'm going to get a bunch of different answers. You might, if you're uh, like a, a nerd, uh, like a philosophy nerd, you might go into the realm of epistemology, how we know what we know and how we come to know. You'd say, well, induction is the opposite of deduction. Induction infers from a bunch of you know, specifics to some general. It goes out and takes samples. It's an empirical way of reasoning. It's what statisticians do, surveys do. Deduction is like you know, major premise, minor premise, conclusion. If you say induction to Katie Harbour the last three or four weeks, what's she thinking? She's thinking babies and doctors, and this isn't exactly how we had it drawn up, but I, you know, get this thing out of me. <laughs> induction. Induction means induction, right? No, it doesn't. No word just means what it means. They're always contextually determined. And what a lot of people do with the Bible is they jump in and pluck a word out, and they think, I know what that word means. And they use what that word means in their context, the English word. Right? There's many, there's many examples of that. So my point is, Matthew is going to use the kingdom of heaven 31 times. Do you know how many times the New Testament uses the, the phrase kingdom of heaven? Do you know, Matt, Matt? 31. All of them are in Matthew. This is very important to Matthew. And so right here at the outset, um, nearly the outset of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, we have in the Sermon on the Mount this phrase, your kingdom come from the Heavenly Father, from heaven. And remember, the world already has a kingdom when these words are being spoken. It's got a very prominent, visible, powerful kingdom called the Roman Empire. This isn't just some academic abstraction. There's a kingdom in place. There are Roman legions all over the place. They're holding up that Roman standard with the eagle on top. They've even got one of those eagles embossed on the temple, the Jewish temple. So there's a very present, very visible kingdom, and the world had had many kingdoms before. The Greek kingdom or empire, the Persians, the Babylonians before them, the, the Assyrians before them, the Egyptians before them. The world would have many other kingdoms to follow. And yet all of these kingdoms were kingdoms of earthly origin. The book of Matthew, by contrast, presents the gospel as the proclamation, the announcement of the coming of a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And you can't overstate how central this is to Matthew's presentation of Jesus. The four gospels are, of course, stories in their own, from their own different theological angles, points of emphasis, about Christ and who he is and what he came to do, right? The gospels are. They're like biographies of Jesus, in a sense. Matthews presents the whole thing in terms of the kingdom of heaven and with all of the biblical backstory for that. So, Matthew 3, 1-2, we read about John the Baptist, the forerunner of, of, of the gospel, the forerunner of Jesus. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything he's going to say subsequently about the gospel is about the kingdom of heaven being here. It's at hand. It's arriving. Jesus himself, a chapter later in Matthew 4, 17, right after his baptism, his temptation, all of that, his ministry is just beginning, and this is how it's characterized, this statement. Jesus from that time began to preach these words, repent, get ready, make the appropriate changes and transformations. Why? Because there's a new kingdom, and it's a kingdom of heaven. It's at hand. So that's very much the way Matthew does this. So to fully understand the kingdom and what it is, we're going to have to look at how Matthew uses that term, and we plan to do that over uh, the coming year. But we also need to be prepared to go beyond Matthew, even beyond the New Testament, to appreciate that this idea of a coming divinely sourced kingdom has a huge Old Testament backstory without which we're going to misunderstand what it is, what it's trying to do, right? You just can't pick up a book and start reading in chapter 7 and think you know what it has, what it's about. You gotta, the author has the right to you know, describe his terms and delimit and delineate what means what. And if you're a good reader, you're going to submit to that. The author's creating the, the little universe, mental you know, universe where, that you're, you're living in while you read it. And the Bible works the same way. And Jesus is demanding that we do this in the statement in Matthew 16. When he says, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That occurs in something called the Sermon on the Mount. A three-chapter sermon, the longest discourse by Jesus that we have in Scripture. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And at the beginning of that sermon, Jesus ties it to what has been said in previous biblical revelation, what we would call the Old Testament. So we don't have an option not to read it that way. He says we have to read it that way. Do not think, Matthew 5, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a Hebrew or Jewish way of saying the Bible, which in their day was the Old Testament. That's shorthand for the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm actually going to expand and, and, and live out and, and, and show you what those things really mean. And so he says in verse 19 of Matthew 5, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments from the Old Testament and teaches others to do the same will be called least in what? The kingdom of heaven. Sermon on the Mount's all about the kingdom. The word is used, I don't know, seven or eight times in those chapters. But right here at the beginning, he's saying, you've got to understand, what I'm doing is some, not some break from the past. It's the fulfillment and the proper extension of the past. It's coming to fruition, to maturation in me. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Law and the prophets, kingdom of heaven. Matt and I are going to be talking in sermons about the kingdom, not just in the New Testament, but the, the biblical backstory of this term of this concept, of the expectations that should have informed people in the New Testament era and that should inform us as we live as citizens in this kingdom. But this divine origin, this heavenly origin, the fact that it starts with the heavenly Father and comes from Him, also says something important about the nature of this kingdom. 
And I'm not going to say much about this right now, just a, a, a caveat, or not a caveat, but a warning, a caution for all of us as we think through these things in the coming year, that we need to check our tendencies to just make assumptions regarding the nature of the kingdom. Maybe along the lines of, well, I know what a kingdom is. First of all, how many of us really know what a kingdom is? How many of you live in a kingdom? We, we know about kingdoms from movies and books and things, you know, some of us from history, a lot of us, if we're honest, history refracted through the lens of pop culture and movies and entertainment. So a kingdom means what? What's a kingdom? A kingdom is all these things I have populating my imagination that maybe aren't from the Bible. And so if this kingdom is from heaven, if it's from sort of outer space, it's from a different realm than the realm we live in, if it's from the heavenly father, then we can't just assume we know what a kingdom will necessarily be. We've got to open our minds and let the scriptures teach us about the nature of this kingdom. Maybe it operates in a radically different way, ethically. Maybe it's values and it's, it's MO, the, the way it you know, gets things done. Maybe it's completely different. Maybe it's not. But we need to approach it with a blank, as, as blank a slate as we as human readers can and let God inform us about what this otherworldly worldly kingdom is. Because the world's true king, the rightful king, isn't just another earthly king. He hails from heaven. All right? I think... A point is being made before Pontius Pilate to this, uh, along these lines in John 18, 36, when you know, this discussion goes back and forth. Well, are you a king? All that, remember? And Jesus says in that context, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Remember the one who did try to fight? Jesus stays him and says, no, no, no. Stand down, put your sword up. That's not the way we do it. But he says, my kingdom is not from the world. Last statement here in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. Now this verse, unfortunately, has been used to justify another notion that we need to address as we move on to our second point. And that notion is that God's kingdom is a totally ethereal thing. Uh, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's been so spiritualized or maybe even intellectualized that it has little concrete relevance to the concerns of everyday earth. Its concrete relevance extends maybe just to Bible class discussions and sermons and things that, doctrines that you're supposed to affirm to be a member of this or that fellowship. But it doesn't really impact things out there where 99% of our existence happens. And honestly, where 90-something percent of the New Testament scriptures are addressed to. They're not mostly talking about the assemblies, are they? Handful of passages. Um, so, this raises the question of where is this kingdom coming to? What does it apply to? Where, where is it, you know, what's its context? What's it, what is, what it is, what is it, uh, where is it lived out? The kingdom is coming, so what's its destination? 
And Jesus answers that for us in Matthew 6.10. He says, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done, what does he say? On earth as it is in heaven. So he's praying to the heavenly father and saying, you know, this kingdom is coming from you, father. Please let it come. You know, let it come to, first of all, where are they where are the disciples at when they're supposed to be praying this? What planet? Earth. So to say, hey, I want something to come, if I'm saying it, it means right here. People, one of my really pedantic um, annoyances is when people mix up bring and you know, take, but whatever. Because it has to do with where you're standing when they use that word. It's every time it's said on TV now, it's, it's backwards. From what I was learning, maybe Arkansas got it backwards. I don't know, K-12 there, maybe. But anyway, if I'm standing here and I say, this is coming to me, by definition, it's coming to where I am. Well, they're on earth. And if it's not clear, he says, let it come on earth as it is in heaven. Somebody says, first thing, I guarantee you, what about John 18, 36? Kingdom's not of the world. Okay, so Jesus just contradicted himself. Is that our conclusion? The same Jesus who says, pray like this in the Lord's Prayer, can't even, get, can't even be consistent with himself when he stands before Pilate a little bit later, a few years later, and says, my kingdom's not of the world, of this world. This, the word underlined there, the word of, is from the Greek preposition ek. And it can mean of, like of the nature of, and things like that. But it also can mean, the Greek preposition can also mean from. In fact, it's translated that way in some versions. The New Revised Standard Version translates this, my kingdom is not from this world. It's from a different world. What world would that be in Matthew 6 in the prayer? Heaven. It's exactly what he's saying. Our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come on earth, like, just like it's in heaven. Everybody in heaven is obeying him doing His will. We want earth to look like that. We want earth to mirror heaven as your kingdom comes down from there to earth. Alright? And you can see that in the last phrase of John 18, 36. But my kingdom is not from the world. Okay? And the preposition translated of or from, it's fine translation either way, it can mean both, often has the idea of origin. Source, the place from which something flows. And our English preposition of can be used both those ways too, right? Um, I can say so-and-so is of Alabama. I mean, they, they moved here from there. Uh, but that accent's not of Alabama. It doesn't have the nature that, you know, it sounds too northern. You know, that's a different kind of nuance, really. Anyway, um, Jesus in John 18 isn't contradicting himself, the Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. Instead, he's praying precisely for the coming to earth of the kingdom which originated or is from heaven. And by the way, I think a lot of times we read this out of context, with, especially out of the context of the whole Bible, but even the context of this prayer. Your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. And what our minds do is we run to this idea that, well, what Jesus is praying here is that the disciples can leave earth and go to heaven when they die. Does that sound like that's what he's saying, just grammatically? 
No, we've got the direction. We're, we're flipping the direction. He's not talking about the disciples going somewhere. He's talking about the kingdom going somewhere. Your kingdom come. And then he says, it's coming to where? Earth. The kingdom is coming down to earth. That's the direction of the movement. Just the logic of that sentence. I'm not saying we don't go to heaven. I'm just saying that's not what this is saying. The kingdom is coming to earth. And, and, and the disciples are asked to bid the Lord make it so. They're pleading to the Lord, let it come on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to make an application here and have you think about this. We'll talk about this many more times in the coming year, Lord willing. That Christ's kingdom is hardly irrelevant to this earth. This is not some theological abstraction that's just for inside the walls of a church building. Or that we grill somebody to see if they can be a member here on. You know, some affirmations, doctrinal affirmations. There you go, there you go, there you go. Now go do business the way you want to. Go, go have your family be just whatever it is. No, no, no. Injustice, all those things, that doesn't matter. Actually, the kingdom is coming to earth, so everything on earth matters. The concerns and hardships that plague us, things like hunger, sickness, death, injustice, oppression, immorality, all these are the very earthly wrongs that heaven's rule remedies as it comes to earth. Matthew 4. I think it's interesting that in Matthew's gospel, the whole gospel is just called the gospel of the kingdom. It's just reduced to that, because that's what it is, especially for Matthew. And he, this is Jesus, early on in, in, the, in the story of his life, Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, what does that look like? What does it include? Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, people oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics and all, just pretty much everything that was wrong. Pain's a pretty big term, pretty broad in ranging term. The sick, the afflicted, the pained, the oppressed, seizures, paralytics, they're just coming to him. Why? Because he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and, and very apparently that's part of it. Because the rule of God is coming to earth. And that's what it's going to start looking like. He sends out the disciples, so-called limited commission, I believe it is, in Matthew 10. Look what he says to them. Matthew 10, verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so make sure you can affirm these seven doctrines so you can get admitted to the right church fellowship. Or write an article or a blog. No, 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 no. Since the kingdom's at hand, heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. In, in Luke, there's a passage that actually says, since you see all these demons getting cast out, the clear, clearly the kingdom of heaven is upon, the kingdom of God, Luke says, is upon you. It's a sign that there's a new ruler in town. That things that were okay before aren't going to be okay. Because God's sovereignty is being brought to earth. There's an author I like a lot named Richard Middleton. 
I wrote an excellent book on the new heavens, new earth. If you ever want to like, what's all this new creation language? Just goes through the whole Bible. It's a very densely textured book with lots of passages. Reads almost like a dissertation. I don't think it was his dissertation. But anyway, he's a great, great author on a lot of subjects. Uh, Jake and I used him in our Mission of God class. Um, where he talked about what the image of God means. There were some quotes maybe if you remember. But anyway, he wrote a little article a few years back called Let's Put Herod Back in Christmas. Let's put Herod back in Christmas. And what he's responding to in this article is all the talk about we need to put Christ back in Christmas, right? Every year there's a flap over that. Remember the Starbucks cups? Feels like last year, but that means it's probably 10 years ago. That's when I'm getting old enough now. Every year, we've got to put Christ back in Christmas. Here's what he argues in this little, this little six-page, seven-page essay. Middleton says, the bigger problem isn't that Christ isn't in Christmas. He's in Christmas. Go to any shop. He's commodified. You can buy nativity scenes everywhere. We're not lacking for Jesus being publicly displayed at Christmas. Let's be real. Everybody likes to be the martyr. Our, our cause is, but that's just not factual. He's everywhere. Go to Hobby Lobby. See. Right? Um, here's what Middleton says. The bigger problem isn't that Christ isn't in Christmas, but that the Christ child who is in modern Western Christmases and their portrayals is a Christ who has little to do with the real world. The world of, of oppression and injustice and hardship and evil. Read this quote with me. He says, let's never forget why God showered His unfathomable love upon us at Christmas 2,000 years ago. Richard Milton doesn't care whether 25th is the right date or not. He knows that. Way more than, the reasons why, even. Probably more than most of us. He's beyond that and bigger, deeper things, fish to fry than that. Okay, so who cares about that? That's, that's not my point. But whatever, whenever it happened, clearly there's a lot of love on the divine being become a vulnerable little baby. That's a beautiful thing. No doubt about it. David talked about that in his Lord's Supper talk last week. But continue with me after the colon there. Because he cared so much for our wounds and for this suffering world that he personally entered the fray, this bloodbath we call history, to redeem us and history from the bloodbath. You don't do that if you just stay lying in a manger, sleeping your heavenly peace, sleeping in heavenly peace. Jesus didn't come into some mythical storybook never-never land. He came into the real world of Herod, the world we know only too well. And he came to take Herod out. You don't believe that? See, what, why did Herod react the way Herod reacted? That's what Christmas is all about. The decisive blow God dealt to evil, injustice, and suffering at the cross. But it started in Bethlehem when a baby lying vulnerable in a manger threatened a tyrant. And so, a tyrant. so he says, let's put Herod back in Christmas. With all that that symbolizes, the kingdom, a king, is coming to this earth. This concrete, real earth that we sweat and toil and worry over every day of our lives. Thirdly, what? What is this kingdom that should come? So the definition of the word kingdom in the Bible, it's been defined many, many ways, many of which, let me just say, are, in my view, less than accurate because they're quite reductive. And what I mean by reductive is 
they reduce the meaning of kingdom down to what a few verses say and don't take into account what many other verses that mean kingdom say. We often do that with our biblical concepts. And so if you're of this view, you run to these verses. Until the person across the table from you that you're having a Bible study with runs to these other verses. And you're kind of like, well, what about these? He says, what about those? Okay, great. The Bible's just in contradiction. No. It's not really a very good definition until it incorporates everything. What did the psalmist say? The sum of God's word is truth. Paul delivered in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders the whole counsel of God. Let's not be guilty of reductive definitions. And we're going to try to flesh out the meaning and the implications of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God over the course of the new year. And our intent will be to allow the totality of Scripture to shape the way we define it. The English word kingdom, if I said to you kingdom, what comes to your mind? If we're not talking about the Bible, I just said kingdom. Anybody? Knights? British Empire? Somebody say castle? Castle? What's that? Hallmark Channel? Okay. Hallmark Channel. Oh, yes, princes, yes, yeah, right. A king, a queen. A king, a queen, yeah. So um, it often in, involves, so I think somebody said a castle. It's like this, it's, a, it's kind of a place. It's a geographical region, often has a castle, and, you know, knights, and all the thrones and crowns. Um, the word translated kingdom is the word basileia. We're going to talk about that word probably a little bit over the year. And it, it, its its basic idea is, is rule or reign, kingship. It's the activity of ruling and reigning and being a king. All right? So remember that. Um, so, the, you know, for, for now, the kingdom of heaven's coming has to do, in essence, with God's will being done. That's a big part of the what. We're going to flesh it out more than that and give it the nuances and context that it has biblically. At least that's going to be our attempt. But we've got to understand that kind of 101, what this word means is somebody else's, some, the king's will is being done. It's sovereignty, it's rule, it's reign. Your kingdom come, this is a parallelism. Notice he's restating it with the second sentence. It's a parallel sentence. Whatever your kingdom come means, it means your will be done. Where? Where we live. On earth. Heaven's already worshiping Him. They're acknowledging the sovereignty of the, of, of the, the cosmos' true king. God, had launched, God launched this plan from way back when. The Old Testament talks about it. And it culminates, it pivots on what happened with the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of Man, as Daniel 7 puts it. And Daniel 7 tells us that He will one day have the nations before Him and He will rule on a, on a throne over everything the Son of Man will. That's, we've been reading about that from all through the Old Testament. Here, the prayer is, this is now happening. Pray that it might you know, come to fruition or be consummated on earth. Your kingdom come means that your will be done on earth 
And ultimately, that's the answer to the what question. As far as we humans are concerned, God's kingdom is His rule and reign being recognized by His people where they live, in their lives, concretely. The way you do business, the way you interact with your wife or husband, the way you surf the internet, you know, the priorities you have, the way you apportion your limited time and limited money, all those things. Those are how, whether your answer, that's, that, that, those, are, those constitute the answer, ultimately, for whether His kingdom is coming in your life. Is His will being done? Notice our 2024 theme banners right back here. There's one out front, too. They say, Kingdom come. And then we've got this upside down teardrop image, which is sort of, it's invoking like a GPS pin. You know, when you search your GPS and get your destination, a little pin drops. It's on a, a, a little mini picture of part of the earth, the part you're interested in, you know. Presumably, if you know how to use it. Some of you are probably like, what in the world is this thing? Um, so that, it, it's the idea of taking this, what could be an ethereal concept, the rule, the reign of heaven, and making it concrete, letting it become manifest, instantiated in our lives, where we live. All right? And there's a little image inside each of these GPS pin things. Over here we've got, over here we've got the crown with a cross in it, so the rule of, of Christ. That one has a, a lamb. Out here we have a lion. Some of the images the Bible uses for who is actually our king. And the subtitle is Living as Disciples of King Jesus. So what we're talking about this year basically is practicing the will of heaven on earth. There is a scene in Matthew 25 that I want to close with. It's a scene of everyone in every nation being on the threshold of eternity, the cusp of eternity. It's judgment scene. And Jesus, this is Matthew 25, who is called the Son of Man, invoking that Daniel 7 text, is now sitting on His throne. It's an image of kingship. And He's judging all the nations. And those who are deemed to be His disciples, if you remember the, the metaphor of the sheep in the story as opposed to the goats, they are told to inherit the kingdom. In other words, as Revelation puts it in Revelation 22, reign forever with Him. Inherit the kingdom. Let's read it, or a little, a little excerpt from it. Then the king will say to those of the nations of the world on his right hand, he separated them like sheep and goats, like a shepherd might se separate the two species that he's Shepherding. To the ones on the right, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So again, we can't just start thinking about the kingdom in Matthew 6. We've got to go back to the, the beginning. It's, it goes from the foundation of the world. It's talked about all through the Old Testament. Well, okay, on what basis? What would it look like if these disciples had lived 
as though the future that, that they knew was coming, the, inherit, the kingdom they were to inherit, were here now. Because disciples of Jesus in many ways, as Brian Zahn puts it, I think, if I remember, I don't remember where I got this, but we're from the future. Christians are people who are from the future in a, in a weird way. Like picture a science fiction movie and somebody comes from the future, or a time travel movie rather. We're, we're already the new creation. We're in advance notice of that. We're already living as if the kingdom's here. Praying that it will come, but living as though it were here by its principles, by its values, by its ethics. That's what he's going to say here. On what basis are they on the right hand and, and, and given the kingdom now? For I was hungry, verse 35, and you gave me food. That's a real world problem, hunger, isn't it? Happens out there. Doesn't just happen in a manger or in a church Bible class. I was hungry. My stomach, I could feel it. It was gnawing, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, an immigrant, a foreigner. This harks back to Leviticus 19, where we're told that neighbor love looks like loving the, the immigrant. That's what he's talking about here. The person that we don't know, that people otherize and dismiss because they're different and they're scary. Jesus says, you took them in. That was me, actually, he's going to go ahead and say. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, actual real prison, and you, you came to me. So what does kingdom living look like? It looks like practicing. Huh? Doing things. It looks like priorities and decisions. And when you make a priority or a decision to do one thing, you know what that means? For a finite being that isn't God, I'm going to eliminate other things or put them on the back burner that are very important to me, very valuable. My heart isn't even there yet. I don't even feel it yet, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing because I'm serving a king, a ruler, a sovereign. That's who was born in, and, and put in that manger. So we're praying, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, we're praying your will be done. Everywhere, on earth. But guess who lives on earth? I do. It starts in my life, in my family. The decisions I make for my family. The priorities I model for my family. It starts in my heart, truth be told. That dialogue I have with myself every day, that I can just, you know, shunt off somewhere where I get busy and dilute it so it doesn't, that, that, that guilty conscience doesn't bother me. No, I want to know the king's will. I trust that the kingdom is the best thing for me and for my loved ones. And so I'm not only going to pray that God's rule be consummated on earth, but I'm going to live by the principles and ethics and values of King Jesus. That's what recognizing his kingship means. I want to close with a quote from Wesley Hill a little essay called Praying the Lord's Will in Gethsemane. He says this, To pray for God's reign, His kingdom, to become more fully visible, to pray for God's perfect heavenly shalom, thriving in peace, to come into its own on earth as well, is to ask for the aftershocks of the fall to be quieted. It is, in effect, to take one's stand against the world as it, as it is now 
and to ask for more and more foretaste of the world as it will be when the kingdom of God is finally consummated. Amen. That's what we're going to talk about this year. Sound cool? I hope so, because we're already too late. <laughs> Spent October and a few other weeks kind of figuring it out. All right. Um, so, we'll be examining in the new year the various areas of our lives and arenas of this earth where God's will needs to be done. That is, where His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, needs to come. All right. If there is anyone here today who would like to come to King Jesus and, and give their life to Him, um, we stand ready to help you do that. There's a baptistry here. People who came, came to Jesus in the first century were told to, if they believed in Him, to confess their faith, repent of their sins, and to be baptized, immersed in water, which symbolized the death of the old person who's living by, by the authority and, and according to the sovereignty of somebody else, namely self, informed by untold other influences that we always think are not, really it's just me, no it isn't, it's you shaped by the world, but you see that and you give that up to follow King Jesus. Baptism is the point at which that begins. We can help you with that. Maybe you just want to learn more, study more with us. We're all learners and students of God's Word as well. So if we can help you in any way, come to one of these chairs here in the middle while together we all stand and sing.